uh, she'd taken the flight into the wind. The pheasant had, had rocketed up to probably 60, 70 feet, arced over and then flown for the horizon. And she cut it off underneath and took it about 350 yards way out the air. So those are the ones, I suppose, that stand out for me. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll podcast and what is now the 11th episode of our series featuring falconers from the UK. In this episode, along with a couple more that you are going to hear, were recorded at one of the sponsors of this particular podcast series, Home, which is Simon Tires, who is also the author of The Specialist Falcon. And if you haven't picked up your copy of his book yet, I highly recommend you do so. There's a wealth of knowledge in it. And there's also a lot of information on flying long wings with a lot of modern technology, including drones and and other things as well. And if you also would like a signed copy, you can also order one from thespecialistfalcon.com as well. And I also have to give a shout out to the other falconer who is responsible for making this podcast series possible, being Neil Davies from Pursuit Falconry and Conservation Magazine. I highly recommend you go to pursuitfalconry.co.uk and subscribe if you haven't already. There's always lots of great new falconry content packed into each issue, along with lots of great new ads for new falconry equipment and also lots of good artwork as well. So if you haven't yet, please go and subscribe. It's well worth the money. And this was the first of a few episodes recorded at Simon's place in this lodge on his property out there. It was another really nice, aesthetically conducive place to do these recordings. And I really appreciate being able to utilize the area to get these done in. So thank you again, Simon, for allowing us to do that. And it was good meeting Dave for the first time and having a conversation with him about some of the different techniques he employs and and uh, some of his uh, history and particular in flying uh, goshawks so i think you all will enjoy this episode there's some good information that being said i give you all dave perry here we go so basically you know i've been told that uh, you've been doing this for a while as well and i mean yeah. how long do you say you've known simon again I've known we were talking about. I was down there about a month ago, and uh, we were talking about it, and um, uh, about f- just under forty years now. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So back into the kind of late, mid to late eighties, really, and then, yeah, and then um, uh, through primarily through uh, attending the British Falconers Club uh, meetings at the Midland Group meetings, uh, I got to know Simon and a few other guys that were flying. Aspirationally, my you know my uh, favourite bird, which is a, uh, the goshawk. Um, so uh, yeah, so I, I can take you through what what my kind of start in falconry was, if that's what you. Yeah, yeah, at. sure, yeah, go go for it. Yeah, I mean, we um, it's one of the things we always touch on. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's a well trodden path, really. You know, uh, I think we've all probably had this unaccountable fascination for birds of prey and. When I was a kid, I was what um, I think six or seven, and I was. And my parents were. Um, where did this come from? You know, and I was just constantly looking for photographs of birds, birds of prey, falcons, hawks, eagles, any, anything, sort of owls. And um, anyway, that continued really until uh, my kind of mid-teens, and I'd started to do some uh, drawing, uh, kind of drawing birds, drawing birds of prey in particular, and I used to sell the drawings for pocket money. So then I got to think, well, I can maybe get a few more drawings done, earn a bit more pocket money. And I bumped into a guy that I'd not seen for the best part of two years, and he was always into his hunting, you know, always into dogs and hunting dogs. And um, he mentioned to me that he he bought a red tail and he started to fly a red tail. I thought, what, what you fly a bird of prey? You know, really, I didn't think that that was possible today. I, you know, I know historically it was, but um, so I went round to to see it on the basis that I wanted to photograph the bird, to draw the bird. That was the whole motivation because I didn't think there was any chance that I would I would be able to to fly one. And this is going back to the uh, the stage in the UK where there was no online presence. You couldn't, you know. 
go online and see birds that were for sale. Very few were for sale. Very few were bred. Um, and there was a, a paper you may have heard, maybe mentioned before, Cage and Avery. It was like a, a newspaper. And in the back of this, this, this weekly publication, you'd have a very small list of birds that may be available. Um, so having decided to, to, to start myself and get involved myself, um, I decided I'd get a red tail. The red tail seemed to be the, the best kind of option. My quarry available was going to be principally rabbits. Um, so I then started phoning people, you know, and I was phoning everybody trying to get this. There was a list of people. I think he, he mentioned the guy who ultimately got it off. Uh, he had an A4 piece of paper, both both sides, where his parents had, had taken numbers of people that wanted to buy this bird. So I was just very fortunate to be able to to get this one. And um, so that that be began things for me, really. I mean, it was all then just learning. You know, I, was, I had a mentor in the sense I had a guy that was already flying a bird and he'd come across a lot of the hurdles and he could give me advice on, on uh, you know, what I needed to know. But a lot of it's first-hand, isn't it? And you're learning by your mistakes. You know, you mishandle, you make a mistake in terms of how you're dealing with the bird, and you learn from that as you go. And, and I think um, I kept that bird and flew the bird for, I think, three three seasons. Um, and then uh, I, I this is when I met Simon. I, I joined the British Falcons Club and... Um, paid my subscription, hadn't attended any of the meetings. And the, the closest um, region was the Midland Group, um, which I'm now currently a member of as, as well. But back in the day, uh, it was uh, everyone looked forward to the end of the season uh, weekend field meet where John Fairclough, who was the director at the time and, and Simon worked for John, uh, would host this end of season three-day meet two or three day meet and we'd meet in the uh, uh the hotel that john owned at night and have a meal and and drink till the early hours but uh i i first met simon then and there was a i think a guy you're meeting later today ian, ian butler he flew gosses at the time simon was flying a goss a guy called uh, mick fox who was um who sadly is no longer with us, but he flew a, a, a female goss and another guy called Sam Rice. So I was exposed for the first time, having flown a red tail at rabbits, to what a goss could do. And it was like, Jesus Christ, how the... <laughs> These things were so quick. They were so committed. Red tails are great, great birds, absolutely brilliant birds. But when a goss is off the fist at a rabbit and a red tail's off the fist at the rabbit, then there's no comparison in terms of acceleration. So that's the dynamism dynamism that you see immediately. Um, so I, I, I decided that I was going to attempt to place the red tail with someone and then move on to a goss if I could if I could get one. And at the time, I think female goshawks were about £2,000 a bird then. Um, and you're going back now you know, 30 odd years. So it's a lot of money, a lot of money to, to part with. Um, and I'd spoken to Simon. We got to know each other quite well. And I, I'd said that I wanted to fly goshawk. And at that time, the club were bringing in goshawks from Europe. And they were bringing them in. Uh, they, they could be branches. They could be, uh, you know, birds that have been caught relatively quickly after they'd left the nest. Uh, or occasionally, it could be passage um, birds. So... Uh, Simon had put some feelers out for me and there was a guy, I think in Nottingham, who was uh, looking to move a bird on that he'd had for one season. And what I'd heard about the bird was that it was um, uh, called a lot, you know, and I was thinking imprint, it's got to be an imprint, you know, the kind of uh, behaviour that was being described. And anyway, I decided to get the bird, so I went over and picked it up. And, um, and it turned out to be a passage bird. And I was absolutely, I mean, I, I thought all goshawks did this. You know, I picked the bird up and I, I booked my holiday in Caithness and I went to Caithness and took the bird up. And it was just catching rabbit after rabbit after rabbit. And it was doing things like, um, I remember one day it was uh, a, a pigeon had flown over and the bird watched the pigeon fly and it fluttered to the ground just over the horizon. And the goss flew off the fist at 45 degrees, found a gully, 
and went down the gully. And next thing I see is this pigeon going vertically and the goss trying to pull it out of the air. <laughs> so all those things that I thought were then, I didn't, even, didn't know the bird was a passage at that time because I, I thought all goss hawks did that, you know, and, and ultimately they will, but, but, but this one knew it already. So uh, anyway, after flying that bird for, I think, three, again, three seasons, I decided I didn't because the whole purpose of bringing the birds in was for the club to establish a breeding population. So at any point, the club could have said, right, we need the bird back now. We're going to put it in the breeding population, uh, a breeding program. So I decided that uh, I needed to own one. I needed to get my own. I needed to start from scratch and fly that, you know, train that bird myself. So I then... Um, uh, Acquired, uh, bought a, a, an IS, a parent reared IS, a Finnish German cross, uh, and I I trained that bird, and then I, that was my kind of main bird for the next five years or so. I used to take her up to Caithness every year. I'd have have all my holidays booked, negotiated with my boss that I could have this block of time, and I'd just get in a car, take my dogs up, take the hawks up, and just fly the bird every day. Um, so that was the start, really. I mean, that was the first parent reared goss I'd um, I'd trained and flown, and I was flying then exclusively at rabbits, nothing else. So I didn't have access to ground with pheasants on. It was beyond me really to to participate in the shoot and buy in and stuff. So um, I would I would go up uh, as I said to Scotland. A girlfriend would come up and she'd film. The flights, and then we had all these rushes, all these, all these uh, snippets of flights that were really just for my benefit. And I thought, well, I can maybe put this into a video. So I made a made a video back in 1994, and I think I called it "Bird of the Fist," right? But it was super VHS tape, so the quality nothing like digital. Um, and I, I was selling some of these tapes. Anyway, I stopped doing that after a while, and I found the tape uh, a few years ago, and. Even it was VHS will degrade over time, so so you lose that footage. So I digitised it and I've just stuck it on YouTube for people to watch if they want to watch it. You know, so it's on there. Um, but then, as I say, I mean, having having gone up to Caithness every year, I think for about ten years. Um, one of the times I was up there, I met a very good friend of mine uh, now, Andy Hollinshead, who breeds goshawks, has bred goshawks for a long time. Um, one of those crazy situations, you know, I'm going down a single track road, he's coming the other way. I see the lights go on as the people recognise there's a bird in the back of the car and I'm thinking, oh no, the goss is going to go mad. So I disappear and he chases me for about five miles and uh, we ended up having a chat and uh, and I saw his bird fly and that was the first time that I'd seen a social imprint goss fly. And I was absolutely blown away at the strength, the vigour, the power of this bird, because I was flying a, a bird that um, probably physiologically wasn't as good an example of a goshawk as Andy's was, uh, because they're just genetically, you know, they're, they're all different, aren't they? And she was, she was very efficient and very good at what she did, but very, uh, no, no particular flair about the way she flew. Andy's bird was incredible. So I, I, I then thought, I need an imprint. I've got an imprint, ultimately. I'm going to keep this bird going because I want to fly the bird I've got, but but I've got room in my life, you know, to have another one. So I, I thought I'd get a, um, an imprint. And um, Andy uh, very kindly agreed to imprint a male for me. Uh, and I, I had a, quite a few seasons with um, with a socially imprinted male, and that was phenomenal hawking, stress-free hawking, you know. This bird would see you and come back from anywhere. If you could see it, it was on its way back, if you called it. And very, very uh, aggressively hunting quarry. Um, could take rabbits, pheasant. Um, so that was my kind of... I've flown a couple of imprints, but predominantly I've, I've flown parent rear birds. And I think of of all the types of bird, whether it's... You know, the species have got to be a goshawk for me. Um, I prefer a female female's flight style to a male generally uh, the quarry base I now fly I fly exclusively at pheasants and where I fly there's some huge uh, cockbirds males are not all it's not always true but males sometimes struggle with cockbirds and turn off cockbirds eventually because they get a, a beating so I think 
the, the females have given me more of what what I was looking for, really. Um, and I I don't have a, a a view really in terms of whether parent reared or or imprint. I think they're both goshawks, you know. And and what you're trying to do is you're not, you're taking that bird on a journey to end up in ideally the same place, but you're starting at a different point. So so your your, your management's got to be slightly different. Yeah, I I. I really like you to kind of expound as much as you can on your views on that, because, you know, while we, we, we try not to go too much into, you know, the opinionated type of things with yeah. viewpoints of, you know, mm. my way's better versus, oh, you know, no, whatever no, no. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, but I am curious to hear what you, I mean, the reason why you prefer one over the other more so, and, you know, kind of the things that, maybe you have done that you realize that you could have done a lot better to maybe yeah. change the outcome of one versus the other. Yeah. Go into that a little bit because, okay. you know, I think it's good for, especially some newer people coming up and whenever they, like in our country, you have to, um, become like a general falconer, okay. general level before you can get an IS and imprint it okay. and things like that. So for people that may be listening that are kind of trying to teeter on that decision, yeah, you know that are getting ready to to upgrade their license, yeah. things like that. It might be good for them to hear. So, okay, um, some of this is what I've heard rather than experienced, though. So, so, but I've, I've, these are from sources that I, I I really rate. So, I mean, I guess firstly, the third thing I'd say is for me, the reason I prefer prefer parent reared birds is um, purely probably because that's where I started if I'm honest, and I seem to do better with them. I seem to get more out of them than I do out of the limited number of imprints that I've I've flown. Having said that, I've seen some fantastic imprint goshawks. You know, I mean, it's guys who've, you know, the, there's no, there's no uh, you couldn't put a piece of paper between them in terms of their hunting capability. Um, and I think it's then a question of what you're looking for from the bird, really. I mean, because, because the, the, the commitment you've got with an imprint is... You know, you, in the summer you can't put it in a seclusion area. You've got to interact with it. You've got to keep it, keep the relationship to some extent going. I mean, it, without if it, you could do it, but you'd pay the price because you'd have to probably drop the weight below where you ideally want it, and then you might get some behavioural issues that come out of that. So, uh, for me and what I'm looking for, uh, I prefer parent reared. Now, um, having said that, one of the big reasons that people uh, historically have said if you have an imprint you know they're going to call they're going to be vocal mine's vocal she's parent reared you know most parent reared goshawks i've had have been vocal and that's not because i think you can manage them in a way to avoid that um but i exercise and feed her at my house in the garden and there's a territorial element that builds up over time so if you if you're going to exercise a bird in that way and feed it immediately around the house you live in you're probably going to have a vocal bird whether it's parent reared or imprinted some of the quietest birds i've actually seen have been imprints you know two three four years old where they're settled and they've been absolutely silent you know so you get arguably you get the benefits of everything you've got a, a, a placid bird that's really tame that's really well adjusted and not vocal um but for me i like the idea of getting a bird at 10 weeks old that's not been touched by anybody, that's fully grown, and taking that journey with the bird, really. Because what, what you do with an imprint effectively is all the manning's done, a lot of the manning's done um, during the imprinting process, isn't it? So effectively what you're doing is you're, you're exposing that bird to everything that it's likely to come across uh, as it's being flown in an intense period where you're taking advantage of the mentality of a, of a, a nestling, which will stay in the nest regardless of what happens. You know, it's absorbing everything like a sponge, isn't it? So this is what imprinting delivers, isn't it? So, uh, and, uh, but I like take going to pick that bird up, fully feathered, not been touched, and then starting the process of manning. Um, and then, uh, so I guess where I've, where I'm, my birds perform better now than they have done historically is where I spend time 
real a lot of time on fitness fitness development so um when i picked the bird up uh just take step by step through that really the first first thing you get is a bird that is physically not developed at all it's uh it's not strong it's not really finished its growth at that point so what i try and do is keep the the weight as high as i can for as long as i can and then as soon as i've got the the bird uh responding uh to to me i try and encourage it then to to come to me obviously and all the steps you would go through all the traditional steps you'd go through um and i then use a retractable dog lead which is about 10 meters long it's got a drag on it of about a pound slightly more than a pound and every time i feed and i do this every day i don't fly her. Uh, i call her to the fish repeatedly uh, for uh, measured amounts of food and i know based on what she has and how much exercise she she uh, goes through what her weight will be at a given time the following day so i can manage quite precisely on that basis um so uh, I suppose I'm meandering a bit, but if if um, if all all goshawks, regardless of imprint or parent reared, key message for me is you will um, they're, they're all goshawks and they're all capable of, of producing that quality that you're looking for. It's then a question really of the living with the bird and what you are looking for from the interaction with the bird. Uh, I can see the benefits and the attraction of imprints. I personally choose parent rear because I see more in that that I that I respond to and I want. So, not neither is better than the other. I think. Yeah, I mean, I I can understand. Like I said, like we talked about earlier, you, basically personal preference is what it is. Everybody has theirs, yeah. but I think you know there there's some guys that that I know that that love imprinting and just love the process mm. of actually the whole raising from day you know mm. whenever they you know, pull the, pull the bird from the nest and, yeah. you know, like they, they want to have complete and total control over the upbringing, the socialization and all that. There's other guys that I know that, that love chamber rays, parent reared, mm -hmm. you know, and they think that, you know, that you can avoid a lot of the, uh, behavioral problems, mm -hmm. uh, that you can easily, you know, kind of instill if you, if you mess up the imprinting process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you know the trade-off is is you know you might not have some of the other imprint you know benefits like you were describing mm -hmm. you know one way or the other like you said yeah eventually you're you're, you're both trying to get to the same point yeah. where you have a bird that that takes game mm -hmm. has has a great flight style you know mm -hmm. and very fit and all that but you know i mean like as far as you know, some of the, the issues that, that you've ran into one versus the other. I mean, you already kind of touched some on the vocalization. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are some of the other pluses and minuses that you've seen, you know, with, with one versus the other personally? Um, I would say uh, imprints that I've seen generally uh, are far more responsive in terms of recall. Um, so, but that can, be, that can be achieved. You know, if it, when I'm on my own with my parent reared goss, It'll come back like an imprint, you know. It'll see me. It'll come back. But if there's anything that distracts it, then the obedience does suffer slightly. So that's a downside of a parent reared bird that you can overcome by intensive manning. You keep keep that manning process up. You can overcome those, provided you can anticipate what those distractions are likely to be. Um, in terms of uh, what I've heard and I've seen some evidence of, is imprint females uh, can display some at certain stages of their training uh, uh they have a, a, t a tendency sometimes not all the time to demonstrate aggression uh, but that's how you manage it then and i think i think what interesting what you said about uh you need to achieve a certain level of proficiency before you're allowed to imprint a bird in the states mm -hmm. yeah. an imprint of any sort from what i've seen is not, to be not taken lightly it, yeah. it's not to be taken lightly mm -hmm. and it's not a bird that you you should start with Generally speaking, mm. um, I'm sure there are exceptions to that, but it's 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 easier to mess up an imprint than it is to mess up a parent rear bird. Sure, uh, I think you're dealing with a um, a different mentality, aren't you? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and that's like I said, I'm, I was curious to to see your point of view on it from someone that's that's flown mm. you know quite a few and, and like it 
part of the reason why I was curious is because you've basically reiterated a lot of things that I've also heard. I mean, I've, I've definitely not flown one, but I've seen quite a few flown since literally day one of my experience mm -hmm. in falconry. Mm -hmm. And I've seen both types imprint and chamber raised mm -hmm. and, and I've definitely seen the benefits of, of both and, mm -hmm. and I've seen, you know, the downsides of both too. Yeah. But I mean, but that's, I mean, that, like I said, that tells me a lot. It tells me that what I've seen and what I've heard both have been pretty consistent across the board, yeah. you know, especially with that particular species. So, mm -hmm. but, um, I, I want to go back a little bit and touch some on what you briefly touched on with some of the conditioning aspect, mm -hmm. because that's interesting. What you were saying about the retractable, you know, collar and yeah. go, go in a little bit more detail with, <laughs> with that part of the regimen, because, okay. you know, it, I think there's a lot of guys that are always interested in hearing, you know, yeah. different, you know, thoughts on that too. Yeah. Um, it's it's not not my idea this at all. I mean, this is something that, uh, in fact, it was introduced to me by a guy called um, Chris Padgett, who again is is sadly no longer with us, but he conceived of um, uh, a an exercise regime. Uh, I mean, historically, people will you know jump hawks, so they'll have you know high jumps and they'll stand on a ladder and get the bird to fly up to them repeatedly and and, and try and condition the bird that way. Mm -hmm. But if you think about what you're looking for the bird to be strong and good at is horizontal flight. You know, you, you, you want all those muscles developing as, as effectively as you can and aerobically the bird to be uh, breathing hard and exercising to the point where it's, it's exerting itself uh, as it would in a flight. So, um, I mean, if, if you look at what you're looking for from a goshawk flight, you know, what I'm looking for and most of the people who fly gosses, I think are looking for uh, is the goss doesn't miss a wing beat. You know, it pumps all the way. That that 100% focus on, on uh, overhaul in the quarry isn't hampered by lack of physical conditioning. You know, you want that bird to be as fit as you can get it. Um, and if a bird's flown every day and flown hard every day, it will acquire that fitness anyway. So it, this, this, this becomes a, um, a supplement that allows you to maintain condition when when you're otherwise unable to fly the bird, and I'm sure I'm sure it would work for other species, you know, as well. I've never tried it with a red tail or a Harris, and um, the, the 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 reticence that some people have with it, and I understand it, is that there's strain on the legs of the bird repeatedly. So is this something that would cause a problem? And, and it hasn't with me. Uh, I suppose if you look at the forces at play when a goshawk nails a jackrabbit or a hare. You know, the, the, the whole physiology of the bird is designed to absorb all those stresses. And this is quite a, a relatively gentle pull. Yeah, I was uh, going to say it's more of a resistance instead of just is. a hard, a hard, you know, yeah. just instant, sudden yeah. impact kind of. Yeah, you know. the, the key thing you, you, you need to do uh, to uh, avoid any uh, or reduce any risk of, of uh, strain is to design your... Uh, exercise system so that when the bird leaves the the perch to come to you there isn't a there isn't a a marked uh, jerk mm -hmm. because that seems to me to be that's where you know the bird's surprised and it's not ready and all of a sudden it jerks and something gets drained and so you can set it up in a way that as soon as the bird leaves the the perch it's immediately under under stress in terms of the uh, the the uh, the drag on the on the lead, so it doesn't have that jerk. Um, so I, I get to the point where I count wing beats. You know, I, I think well, you know, she's working quite. That's, that's fourteen wing beats and 10, 10 meters. You know, she's working really hard. Barely barely makes the fist, but makes it. And then after a few days, you'll see she make the fist a bit a bit better, a bit easier. Then you can maybe use an incline, so you can call. To a to an elevated position where she's using horizontal flight plus the you know the capture uh, upswing at the end you know and you, you're trying to build all those kind of things into a uh, into the conditioning and all I can say is it's been fundamentally uh, a massive change to the quality of the sport that I've I've experienced uh, I I wouldn't do anything else and and as somebody comes up with a a, a different type along the same basis that that does. Does it better? But I can't see how how, how that can be done. Um, so when I when I take uh, the the bird out, you know, look at an ice. I don't fly her until she's fit. 
never fly her until she's... I don't go out trying to catch um, poults, pheasant poults with an unfit goshawk. Um, I, I get with imprints that there are different reasons to enter them early and, and, and all those things, but I'm talking parent-reared, really. And uh, I'll spend really from September through till probably end of October getting the bird manned, obedient and fit. And when she goes off the fist at the first pheasant, and they will, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't need to be, you know, shown what a pheasant is. When it flaps up in front of them, they know what it is. Um, uh, she's equipped with as, as much fitness and condition as she can have to ensure success. And when she catches that, that first pheasant, and it might be the first one she sees, and it might be the tenth one she sees, but she gets rewarded for it. And the other thing that I do that, um, again, this isn't me saying this is the only way to do it. This is just what works for me, and and that's single kills. Uh, so if I go drive to my ground, which is an hour and a quarter away, and I take the dog out and go on the hill and flush a pheasant, and she kills that pheasant in the first 20 minutes, that's the day done. You know, but by the same token... You know, she flies all day and gets the opportunity all day to catch a pheasant, and she might fly half a dozen. And 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 what you're doing by that that one kill approach, I I think, is you're kind of buying the performance on the blank days. You know, you, you I can take her out on a blank day, and she's flying just as hard on the fifth flight as she was on the first. You know, because she knows what she's going to get at the end of it. Um, so that's what I like to do. Uh, for, for me, that works. That works uh, the best. Um, so uh, the conditioning around the uh, the feeding. The other the other thing I'd add there is what I've started to do is uh, supplement the food with water. So even though it's not you know it's quite cold here in in you know November time, uh, when they're exerting themselves, if you look at a goshawk on a perch. When it's breathing out, you can see its breath. You know, it's losing moisture all the time. And when it's panting, when it's coming to you repeatedly, it's losing more moisture. It's got to be. So what I, uh, I do is weigh the food first. I add supplements of Vitahawk, and then I'll add some water so that every morsel of food she gets is coated in water. It's not She's not being force-fed loads of extra water, but she's getting additional moisture. And I think that helps as well, given that she's exerting herself so much and losing that that extra moisture it seems to seems to help yeah that makes sense yeah i mean mm -hmm. if the bird's going to get dehydrated just like yeah. any, any other person or yeah. animal yeah for yeah. sure but now and uh, out of curiosity too i, I know and kind of going back just touching on a little bit of the mm -hmm. difference too is um you know the stress levels sometimes between an imprint yeah. versus a chamber bird like mm -hmm. i know like in a climate say where i live it's a lot harder to to keep one healthy at times okay. whenever with the weight management aspect, yeah. because they're a lot more prone to asperth and some other species. Yeah. And we kind of run into that a lot sometimes when, mm. especially if you're, if you're bringing one down in weight and, okay. and it's stressed at the same time and, and all that kind of stuff, they can sometimes get more prone to it and mm. be more likely to, to die. But I mean, with the way the climate is here, Mm -hmm. And with the way you manage, you know, the, the the food and weight for your birds, have you noticed any like real difference in that? I mean, what what do you like to do? Do you like to gradually mm -hmm. taper, you know, the weight down through the week, or do you like to maintain a consistent weight? Or what's um, your approach with that? During during the flying season, I'm looking for a consistent weight. So every single day I want to try and hit that that weight. Having said that, I want the bird to be at the top end of its weight range. So um, if I take the bird I've got now, uh, she came out of the aviary second season, uh, £3.04, um, and she killed the first pheasant at £3.5 an ounce. So this is a bird that's in a, ch in a chamber, been cut down slightly, so she was probably 3.5, 3, 3 Um But by... Starting off um, the exercise program, obviously you're, you're building muscle and reducing fat, aren't you? so in increasing appetite effectively. Mm -hmm. So when I was on <clears throat> on my own, I could take her out three pound and a half an ounce. It came back really well. <clears throat> so I, um, so that is is uh, uh, 
the kind, I mean, I, she will fly at the end of the season reliably at about 215, 215 and a half, but that's fully muscled and that's been out, you know, through the season in company, on field meetings. Um, whereas I would be, and I did try this this last year, I took another field meeting when she was three pound and a half an ounce and I'm not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, um, but, but, when when the bird's at the top end of its weight range, I think another thing you get you get from imprints is that they they're relatively flying in a in a in a higher condition mm-hmm. often. Um, that uh, you do benefit from that. Yeah, I've I've seen it done both ways, and it seems like you know it's it's I've seen it done both ways successfully with guys that I know there's there's some guys that that I hunt with that um that fly goshawks that they work a lot through the week. So the weekends are their primary times yeah. to hunt. So they, at times they'll, they'll feed up a lot at the beginning of the week and then okay. gradually through the course of the week taper down. That way they, they don't have to worry about any kind of as many health issues. Okay. If they're, you know, starting if, you know, with the, with the stress issue and, and that, and they, they can kind of taper through the week and then, but then like I've seen them also work with the consistent, weight mm. approach too. I've seen it done successfully both ways, but you know, some guys claim that they have more health issues with one versus the other potentially, but you It'd know. It'd be interesting to see the the evidence for that, wouldn't it? You know, yeah. and record the evidence for for it to see what what that shows because I mean, when I I'm retired now, but but uh I for years I was working 9 to 5, 5 days a week mm-hmm. flying at weekends. Mm-hmm. But I used to come home and I used to exercise the bird on the dog lead every day and I keep the weight stable right the way through. Uh, to the point where, on the Friday, I I wouldn't drop the weight, but I would uh, not feed casting on the Thursday, and feed enough to keep the bird level for Saturday morning. So I'd exercise in the morning before going to work on that one day, and in the evenings the rest of the day. But I, the weight was pretty much stable all the way through. Uh, there might be some climatic differences that cause the health issue um, here I've, I've not experienced it myself yeah where we live it's it's, it's it gets very hot and very humid we it, like nice. 95 to 100 degrees fahrenheit with 100 percent humidity yeah, okay yeah. so i mean it can it can get pretty nasty in, yeah. in the midwest where we live at times okay. but but no well and and so when you say exercise like so it's not affecting the bird's tenacity or will to hunt as you're exercising through the week and doing like glove recall and things like yeah. that you're not facing any issues kind nothing, of nothing. not not with the birds i've flown um, they don't get glove bound or anything like that but, well i mean i don't know what uh i've never done this with an imprint so i i've i've never done all the imprints i've i've well, i've never done it uh, i've done i've done it with a male um and i didn't see any issues with the male uh, that's not to say it's one, that's one imprint goss, you know, so I can't speak with any authority about what the impact of calling to the fist repeatedly during the week for an imprint might be. Uh, it'd probably a lot, be a lot less desirable. Yeah. <laughs> would be my guess, but, but I mean, but, but the, the, the imprints I've, I've seen loads of imprints flown to the fist, uh, reliably you know, without calling to a law and, and perfectly well behaved, you know? So I think, um, a lot, I think, a lot depends on your reading of the individual bird, doesn't it? So, and what you sure. condition them to as well. Uh, I think, um, but it's, it certainly works with parent rear birds. I mean, I, I've I've flown an, a number of goshawks on that regime over a long space of time, and, and haven't seen a a, a a reduction or an issue with a performance or a behavioural problem. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating. Mm. No, that's, and I think there's a lot of guys that might overlook that because. I don't know, like I can see where the, the thought would be potentially that maybe you're going backwards, you mm-hmm. know, and you know, the trying to keep your recall intact and, and the hunting part, you know, kind of happens naturally the more you hunt the mm-hmm. bird anyway. But I can see where some guys would think that, you know, you're just reinforcing more glove issues potentially or something with that. So that's why I yeah. asked. I, I mean, yeah. that's, that's really, that's really interesting though. Yeah. It's a, uh, I, I, it might, it might be that the imprint dimension does complicate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether you could replicate the, uh, calling off regime to a law, uh, instead of a glove. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It might be, log- might be logistically harder to do. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, but certainly, uh, that's where you know parent rare birds certainly would be fine. Well, and as you said too, experience. and you, and you made a good point also. It's like every bird's different. Yeah. And sometimes you just got to read the individual that's bird. It. If if the bird is kind of acting like it might, yeah. you know, have um, an issue with with that, then yeah, you're going to have to change what you're doing. Yeah. But no, that's that's very cool. I mean, I appreciate you going a little bit into more detail with the uh, with the more specific aspects of that because, like I said, we're we're a lot more interested usually in of course getting people's stories and how they get into this yeah. and um you know different stories and things like that that they have but i had been uh told beforehand and warned beforehand that you have some interesting approaches to some of that so i definitely wanted to touch on it so yeah, i appreciate yeah. you sharing yeah. that but um but as far as the other aspects of, of things that you've done you know you mentioned that you did the whole video deal. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, there's some other guys that I know of that have done, you know, made that have done the video deal and made some stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I mean, how long did it take you to, to compile that? Well, I had a, a very patient girlfriend at the time. who used to come <laughs> out with, a, with a, uh, a huge video camera, a super VHS full-size tape in it. You imagine the size of the, mm-hmm. uh, the camera. And she'd stand there patiently waiting for the flight, you know, uh, and we just ended up with ended up with loads of footage. So the the business I worked in, there was a guy who was into his um, his video editing, and and he had all the relevant software, and he offered to to do it for me. So uh, we put a, a, a music soundtrack on it with uh, some rock music, which is not to everybody's taste, but but it was just flight after flight after flight. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't a particularly time consuming thing. Once I had the raw material, it was really sitting down for a, a few days with the guy and, and piecing it together. Yeah, no, it sounds like it wouldn't be very intensive for you if you had everybody doing your work for exactly. you. Exactly, <laughs> smart yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, <laughs> smart man. Yeah, no, yeah. that's that's great. Yeah. No, so I, and you just made the one video. Yeah, I've, I've I've I try as far as I can, like like many of us, to to capture. Uh, footage on on my phone of flights that uh, throughout the season because it's great to play those back, you know. Um, uh, but yeah, I've, I've only made the one the one video uh, that's a kind of an end to end product, really. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Well, going back and and kind of finishing up the thoughts, I, I like I said, I kind of that popped into my head, so I wanted to make sure to to ask if you had any other videos or anything that yeah. were available for people to potentially see, but. But popping back over to kind of the final wrap-up thoughts on on the goshawks, I mean, is there a particular hybrid or species that you kind of prefer over the other? Um, I would say, uh, I mean, my my experience has been with either pure Finnish birds or uh, Finnish, Finnish crosses. Um, and they, uh, the key thing that I think with... Um, any parent rear bird, but, but Finnish birds seem to be more, um, you know, less less afraid of you to start with. They're more ch- they're more chilled, generally. Uh, the the one I've got now was uh, pulled out of the the pen. I took her home, and within two days she fed on the fist, you know, and she was not phased by anything. Her natural mindset was, I'm not sure about that. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to bait away from it because I'm not scared of it, but I'm not sure yet. You know, so, so it was that kind of thing. It was quite an easy journey with it. I've had other ones that have been a little bit more of a challenge, but I think a lot of the historical perception of uh, parent rare birds in the UK was born of all the birds that were imported uh, back in the ones I mentioned earlier, where they'd be, they'd be caught up, they'd be put in a box, they'd be shipped across to the country, they'd be put in quarantine parent rear birds, all of them, and then someone would try and undo all that. So then you've got all the psychological things that you've got to try and undo and then build back. Uh, and I think that's probably to some extent, you know, I'm sure there is, a, there is a case for saying that some of the southern latitude birds are naturally more you know, wilder and perhaps need more manning. Um, but I think that didn't help that they had that start in life. So then their reputation grew from that to some extent. Uh, I prefer Finnish birds, you know, and I prefer um, yeah, hundred percent Finnish if I can if I can get them. And um, the one I've got now is uh, bred by a guy called Glenn Thompson, who produces some excellent quality birds. And uh, I was introduced to when I was looking for one two years ago, and uh, I'm glad I did. 
Cool. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got a couple of buddies that um, have flown the either pure finish or finish crosses, yeah. and I think that's kind of been what they've evolved to. Also, they kind of prefer you know the the finish as well because I I mean their their temper and I have seen their temperament versus the North American birds yeah. and. Or even the North American crosses and stuff, and it yeah. it does look quite a bit calmer, <laughs> you yeah, know, for yeah. overall. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading um, a book by Frank Beeb um, on one of his books, uh, whether it was North American falconry and hunting hawks, but it was he he said that in the states or in Canada, the effort associated with getting a northern latitude goshawk on the American continent was worth uh, doing. Because of the temperamental benefits you get, so I wonder whether it's a latitude thing. You know, you get the more north. I don't know why that would be, but it 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 seems to be common from his experience, from what I read, uh, yeah. to what we see. So yeah, who knows? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. there's I mean, a lot more information we can probably get on that. By oh yeah, well, pooing, I mean, uh, for every falconer, there's ten theories for every yeah, subject, yeah. <laughs> and and a, and an opinion for each one of those. Yeah. I know hundred opinions for each one of those theories yeah, too. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, run into that also, yeah. but. Well, let's uh, let's kind of transition then to you've already you already kind of shared sort of a story or two with your mm-hmm. you know talking about your um, initially getting into the sport and yeah. and all that. But it, it, I think it's time now for you to go ahead and share, if you can, the one or two either stories that pop into your head as far as you know flights, hunts. Mm. Or um, whether it be a particularly special bird that you've had, mm. and just go ahead and share those with us. I'm going to guess um, when I start when I started, the first bird I flew uh, was you know, my first goshawk, so that was one that will always hold a you know a place in my memory, I guess. And I was flying rabbits at the time, and she would take confidently eight nine rabbits a day, you know, and and. Um, Numbers was part of the kind of benchmark of how how well I'm doing as a falconer, you know. Yeah. And and I and I think, I, I think single kills now when I'm flying game, uh, is it's closer to what happens in the wild. You know, a, a wild bird doesn't go and catch something generally, uh, have its fill and go and catch something else straight away. Does it? You know, or even take a small bite out of it and then go and catch something else. You know, so so I think there's there's a you're trying to capitalize on the inbuilt genetic underlying potential for that bird or the the behavioral characteristics of that bird. And I think single kills does it for me. Also, I don't want to kill a lot of pheasants. <laughs> I don't, I like pheasants, you know, and, and <laughs> I, I like hunting them, but I, I'd rather see a six, seven, 800 yard flight of a goshawk that's tried its hardest and that pheasant escapes. Uh, and uh, still maintain that by getting success in other other flights, but absolutely brilliant to watch it. You know, the land, land I've got down in Shropshire is on the Long Mint, and um, it's some days in, in the season, very, very few, but you can get the cockbirds up on the top of the hill, and when they come off the top and they don't miss a wing beat, they're coming down to the wood, and the, the birds coming after them, those are the ones, those are the days, really. Those are the uh, the flights I remember. Um, but any any pheasant flight uh, where the pheasant tries its hardest and the goshawk tries its hardest, regardless of the outcome, you just see the way they both try, you know. And, and we put uh, on this shoot, we put a lot of X layers down last year, and they're a different, a different. Uh, I know in, in the States you don't probably do it the same as us, but... We repopulate areas with either poults at the start of the season or ex-layers or cockbirds from a previous season and release those on the hill and put food out for them. They're, they're, they're wild birds and they stay on the hill and they, they, they're on there for months. And um, But ex-layers that have been on a shoot and survived for one more seasons fly completely differently to a, to a bird of the year. You know, they've got the strategies nailed. You know, the, the 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 dynamics of the flight are different. You know, and they're brilliant to watch. So that that, that in terms of individual flights, uh, I can't say that any particular one stands out apart from the objective of getting that doesn't miss a wing beat flight. And if you see a goshawk fly after quarry 
and it's absolutely committed. It tilts its body forward. Its body doesn't move. It's only the wings that move. And it just rose after this, uh, the pheasant. And the pheasant knows, knows what's coming. It's trying its hardest to escape. And that's the, I mean, ultimately, ideally, the best would be, you say, it out the air. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes it does. And, yeah, it's, it's happened with the birds I've got. The one I've got now took one uh, last season on a, on a grouse moor um, where they put down a limited number of pheasants. And uh, she'd taken... The flight into the wind, the pheasant had, had rocketed up to probably 60, 70 feet, arced over and then flown for the horizon. And she cut it off underneath and took it about 350 yards away out of the air. So those are the ones, I suppose, that stand out for me. But it's not all about that. You know, it's everything else. You know. And what we haven't mentioned is working dogs. You know, dogs are critical. Um, and a good dog is... It d- delivers uh, so much more in, in terms of the quality of sport you see. And what breed do you prefer for that? Um, I used to work spaniels, uh, and they're they're great, but they they require a lot of uh, intervention, a lot of management. So you're pipping the whistle all the time, and turning them, and, and directing them. Uh, and I I now uh, run a, a German wirehaired pointer, so uh, they're relatively. Um, uh, less require less management to become uh, very um, hunting orientated and they'll point game and point uh, and then flush game on command so uh, that enables you to cover a lot, an awful lot of ground relatively quickly whereas a spaniel tends to stay in a kind of 30 yard radius in my experience uh, a pointer can be 100 150 yards 200 yards away and still work in the hill uh, so you're covering a lot more ground more quickly Gotcha. Yeah, no, you're right. And and thanks for, uh, thanks for prompting that because yeah, I mean, especially the guys that, that are proficient with it and incorporate dogs into their hunting team, mm-hmm. it's just as important as the bird or mm-hmm. anything else that, that selection I should say. So, yeah. but yeah, I mean, uh, so you've, have you been hunting with dogs primarily like from the get go or like, yeah, oh, to when I started, I, I, uh, I didn't, I, I, I tried to fly gossip without a dog. Um, and in Caithness at that time, there were enough rabbits to allow you to walk along a hill on the verge right. see one you go go. But um, when I uh, met Simon, Simon was very into his um, uh, training his spaniels and, and working his spaniels for the uh, for the field mate. And I saw them working, and I was great. I got you know I, I got as much information as I could from, from Simon, and uh, I took a couple of dogs over the course of the next half a dozen years or so that had kind of finished their trialing life, so maybe five years old, but they had an awful lot of work, very experienced dogs, and I just ran them on to retirement, and they stayed with me then. Um, but I, I, I used to work those. and um, But I think HPRs are, are the uh, the preferred partnership between a you know, goshawk and dog for me in terms of the ground I've got and, and uh, the type of hawking I do. Great. Well, cool. Um, I think, I mean, we've covered a lot. So I think also what I really would like to go ahead and, and get your opinion on too, is I, you're, you're a member of the club here, right? Yes. The BFC. So, yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts on, I mean, do you recommend that, that people, anybody that listens to this maybe here in the, in the UK? Um, I mean, do you recommend that they, they go with that if they're, yeah. uh, yeah, very much know? so. I think if someone wants to, um, participate in the sport uh, they absolutely need guidance um, one of the things that the sport struggles with I think at the moment is the number of birds that are available and the lack of um, criteria associated with uh, someone buying one they can go onto a magazine or online and they can pay the money and they take the bird um, breeders uh, have great sympathy and great respect for people who breed hawks because without them we wouldn't have sport um in the uk uh, i think the issue is probably more about birds being handed on i think breeders or the ones i've met are very concerned to make sure that those birds go into the right hands um and but when they're sold on they've got no control uh, and the number of harris hawks that are, that are lost here uh, flown without telemetry you know th- those sorts of things shouldn't happen and correctly mentored people would find uh, 
methods to avoid that happening. Uh, and uh, clubs are a, a really good uh, starting point. You can acquire a mentor. You can you can exchange information. You can you can learn from people. You can go out and see hawks flown. I'm a member of the British Falcons Club and also uh, the Welsh Hawking Club. There are other clubs in the UK, um, but the the most important thing is to get uh, a mentor who is skilled and experienced in the type of hawking you want to do. Um, Obviously, you need we only you need land, you need access to game. All those things influence your choice of hawk, and also um, the practicality of you actually entering the sport at all. Um, but the mentor will enable you to learn from somebody else's mistakes, not your own. For sure, yeah, and I I think that most guys that have been doing this for a while, even the ones that haven't, quickly learn the value of having somebody to show you what you're doing yeah. and what you're doing wrong. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. I mean, you can learn from other people's mistakes just as, as readily as you can your own. Yeah. But and I think the welfare of the hawks as well. You know, the the um, it's sad to see you know, that someone getting a bird that no doubt they really want to fly that bird and they they've got the emerging you know passion for the sport, but they're able to get a bird too soon. They get the bird and the bird suffers because the housing isn't right, the regime isn't right, the equipment isn't right, the telemetry isn't used all those things that would avoid all those problems. The bird pays the price at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, yeah, I mean, all of us make mistakes, but yeah, to, to, to be able to have at least that, that initial guidance and, you know, just that, <laughs> that initial, um, I, yeah, that mentorship is, is invaluable yeah. because I mean, there's a lot of things that you can't avoid doing wrong if you mm -hmm. just, you know, have that versus, versus not, but, but yeah, no. So I guess this would be a good time to go ahead and, and ask you if there's any other little pearls of wisdom or, um, you know, bits of advice that you would have to pass on to other generations or even people that are currently practicing and, and, um, uh, probably end on that note. Probably, uh, I mean, I, I've flown a number of different different goshawks and, and those have gone back into breeding arrangements and I've then had young and, and, and so on. But I think the commitment is, is, is the thing that people need to understand what the lifestyle choice is that they're making because there are prices to pay for, for um, doing falconry and doing it well. And that's all the other bits, you know. So most falconers, in my experience, have got you know fairly rocky marriage history. I've got <laughs> I've got I've got two divorces behind me. So, but I, I I think I think it's understand what you're taking on, and that's that's all back to the mentor thing again. Really, that's making sure that you do the research, you get the guidance, you don't just think you can do it because it is available. When I started, there was less available. Now there's a lot of stuff online for people who want to kind of understand the the basic grounding of stuff. You you might with everything you might not agree with everything that's said, but but it's it's information that just was not available previously. Yeah, yeah, no, there's there's a lot of um, yeah to get the at least the initial that initial okay, what is this? Mm. You know what what exactly am I going to have to commit to do this? And yeah. just that initial and and. I think most importantly for myself was spending a season just getting out and seeing how it's done. That's and yeah, crucial. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You really understand it, and um, I think you know the, the overhead of time, the what if things go wrong, how access to veterinary care, uh, access to uh, food food supplies, uh, access to uh, appropriate housing, appropriate land, appropriate quarry. Uh, all those things together, really. And if you can square all those off and you can get the guidance, then do it. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, I think that it's time to uh, maybe go pester Simon and force him to make us something to eat. Oh, um, that'd be nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, we'll have to suffer his presence again for a yeah, little bit yeah. longer. But, yeah. uh, but at least he's got the chef's hat on. 
Well, yeah, chef's hat, and um, I think the beer is in the fridge in his house. So, I mean, we kind of have to. Well, oh, well, yeah. There's never mind. There's some right over there too. <laughs> so maybe we don't have. We maybe we could just you know just stay yeah. out here and just ignore him the rest yeah. of the time. But it's a great meeting. I really appreciate you giving us the time, sharing your experiences, your some of your knowledge, and uh, and your stories. Thank so. you. It's been it's been. I was flattered to be asked. Um, I, I certainly don't want to position myself as having all the answers because I haven't got them. None of us do. None of us do, no, absolutely. <laughs> and if there's anything anywhere in any of that that's of use to uh, anybody, then I'd be, I'd be really pleased. Well, like I said, thank you again. And um, like I said, I, I, I very much value other people's time. I know how important it is. So, I mean, thanks for making the, the trip down and, and hanging out with us for the better part of an hour here. And um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll go and, and hang out a little bit longer. And then we'll, I guess we'll talk again soon. That's great. All thanks right. very much. Thank thanks. You.